Wisconsin Supreme Court becomes the progressive activist equivalent of Disneyland. Chicago decides to double down on failed policies for the city. South Carolina House Family Caucus Leader Representative John McCravey calls in to talk about the return of gambling to South Carolina. And I will make at least two new aspects of the indictment of Donald Trump, I should say, a little bit more clear. Get ready for truth and politics and culture with Dr. Tony Beam because it's time to crank it up. We have to get to the crank it up part before we can keep going. All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome in. For those of you who are listening live, thank you for joining me this morning. Um, I am working on getting the podcast issues straightened out. I talked with uh, uh, the guy that's helping me to do all that last night. And uh... Okay. Sorry. Had a little bit of uh, a technical issue there. So anyway, um, working with a guy that um, um, is helping me to get the podcast up where they belong, uh, where they'll be uploaded to Spotify and all the different places where you get podcasts. So hang in there with me. Uh, this is the fourth show uh, that we've that we've done. We're in day four of Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam, and so we're still working out some of the kinks, some working out some of the bugs. I mean, I, I guess I can take comfort in the fact that uh, the radio station I just left is playing Christmas music right now. So I, I guess it's okay for me to have to work out some kinks and some bugs if, if they're not over to cl classic Christian music yet. All right, um, let's dive into the first story of the day. Wisconsin Supreme Court turns sharply left. Uh, this election in Wisconsin for a Supreme Court justice garnered a lot of national attention. And you may think, well, what do we care in South Carolina, what the Supreme Court looks like way over there in Wisconsin. Uh, well, we, we should care because Janet Proterowitz defeated Daniel Kelly, which means the Wisconsin Supreme Court is now firmly in the hands of radical progressives. Now, the, the, and the margin, quite frankly, was not that close. Kelly was defeated by a 10-point margin, um, uh, Proterowitz won 55% of the vote to, to Daniel's 45%, uh, Daniel, Ke uh, yeah, Daniel Kelly, that is. Uh, so Republicans in Wisconsin had taken control of Wisconsin's congressional districts. There are eight districts in, in Wisconsin that, have, that elect Congress pe people to uh, Congress and also people to the, in, to the House districts, and Republicans control six of them. So they had basically a supermajority. And progressives realized that the only way that they were going to get any power, the only way they were going to take power in Wisconsin, would be to take over the Supreme Court. So they, they spent, as we talked about yesterday, an unprecedented $42 million on a state Supreme Court race. Now that's you know a ton more time, more money that's ever been spent in a, in a state race. Uh, for a su Supreme Court seat in any state, so th th I mean that's a that's 
that that's a lot. I mean, <laughs> that's a lot of money coming in from the from outside the state. Which, and you might say, well, well, why would people in California? Why would people in other states, for example, why would they care about the Supreme Court in California? Well, it's it's pretty obvious. Um, Wisconsin's a swing state, and so when we get down to election law. Wisconsin election law is going to matter in 2024 in the presidential race. Uh, it could matter quite a bit. Uh, Wisconsin's got was able because of the Republican majority uh, legislature was able to pass some pretty good election law uh, protections. That is voter ID laws, just laws that make sure that there's not going to be a lot of wholesale cheating. And the, all of those are likely to be overturned now by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. What you're going to have is a rash of lawsuits. Um, you, they wouldn't have filed so many lawsuits before because the court was 4-3 conservative. Now it's going to be 4-3 progressive, far-left progressives. So all the progressives are going to come out of the woodwork. Wisconsin has an abortion ban. I mean, it's a pretty strict law against abortion. You can pretty much say that that, that law is going to be gone because uh, Janet uh, Pro Protocrat actually ran on a, a platform, I mean, for a, a Supreme Court justice, I mean, in, in Wisconsin. And, and that's, that's pretty incredible, considering the fact that most justices, most judges in every contest, they, they don't want people to know exactly where they're coming from. They want to hedge their comments a little bit because they want to be fair. They don't want to be seen as doing exactly what she did, which is run on a platform of far-left reforms. She pretty much promised that the congressional districts in Wisconsin, that the drawing of those congressional districts, which admittedly helped Republicans, she's just going to throw, she's just going to throw those out. I mean, she's going to absolutely just say, you know, uh, she's going to agree with the other progressives on the court and rewrite those districts. Now, what 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 is what standard is she going to use? Republicans at least use the standard of keeping cities and communities and counties uh, together in a district system that kind of made sense. So what is it that she's promised to do? Racial equity, okay? Racial diversity, which means drawing those districts according to race. I mean, she's going to redistrict or she's going to lead the charge among the progressive justices on the Wisconsin Supreme Court to redistrict the entire state based on race. Now, the United States Supreme Court will probably throw that out, but still they're going to have to come back. And, they're, and, and in Wisconsin, uh, there won't be anything they can do about abortion, by the way. Uh, we're, we're facing that same situation here in South Carolina. Our legislature can't pass a pro-life bill uh, because the Senate wants one thing and the House wants another, and they haven't been able to work out a compromise so far. Well, uh, in, and all of that's been done because um, the heartbeat bill, which we had in South Carolina, was thrown out by our Supreme Court. And this is what's going to happen in Wisconsin, except it's going to happen, uh, I mean, it's going to double down. It's going to happen multiple times uh, because the Wisconsin Supreme Court now is progressive, proud of it, and they're not even trying to hide it. And this is this is a new trend among progressives, is just to come out and say, we're going to take the law. 
we're going to take the courts. And when we get the courts, we're not going to be fair. We're not going to look at the law. We're not going to try to decide if the law on the books is according to any constitutional standard. Uh, we don't need no thinking constitution. I mean, that's just kind of the way that uh, they're going to look at it. Uh, when progressives get a hold of things, and they're certainly going to do that in Wisconsin. And I can say that because they've made it public. This is not something they're trying to hide. They're not hiding the ball when it comes to what their agenda is, even when it comes to determining right and wrong according to the law by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Um, so like I said, voter ID laws, uh, you can forget it. That's probably going to be gone. How is that going to affect the presidential race? Well, if you have election law determined by a state Supreme Court and you open up the voting without any safeguards, then that's going to favor Democrats. It's going to favor Wisconsin could definitely, uh, well, it flipped blue for Joe Biden. It was a state that went for Donald Trump. So it's, I mean, it's considered to be a swing state, but it's certainly um, is likely to go blue this time if the state Supreme Court creates an environment, a voting environment, that overly favors Democrats. And they pretty much promise that they're going to do that. In Chicago, um, you, you know, Chicago's had a tremendous surge in crime. I mean, it's just a, when it comes to crime in Chicago, it is a mess. And what they decided to do was double down on crime. Now, I'm not talking about doubling down on getting rid of crime or reducing the crime rate. I'm talking about doubling down by putting somebody in the mayor's office who is actually to the left of Lori Lightfoot when it comes to fighting crime. Lori Lightfoot was a disaster as a mayor. And Chicago voters decided the best thing to do was to make things to make things better in Chicago would be to go to the polls and elect another Bernie Sanders back far left progressive who will likely govern much pretty pretty much the way Lightfoot governed, except he's going to push the city in an even more leftward direction. Far-left County Commissioner Brandon Johnson defeated the more moderate Paul Vallis by about two points. Uh, this was an upset because going into the poll, going into the Chicago mayoral race, uh, the polls looked like that the race was going to go to Vallis. He was leading by two or three points, and Brandon Johnson ended up winning by two points. Um, Chicago's been devastated by skyrocketing crime. I mean, it's been it's been a disaster. It's been the number one concern that's been expressed by the voters in Chicago. And Paul Vallis pledged to hire a thousand new police officers. Um, he was endorsed by the police. He was endorsed by the firefighters. He was also endorsed by leaders in the business community. But all of that was for naught because he is not going to be the mayor. Johnson is. And Johnson, uh, who, who won the election, has loudly endorsed the defund the police movement. And he campaigned on the idea that more police officers would not help solve the city's crime problem. I mean, makes sense, right? You've, you've got rampant crime. You've got low police morale. You've got a shortage of police officers in the city of Chicago. So the solution is we don't need no police off, more police officers. Uh, we need to hire social workers in the place of the police officers that we've already lost. And that's going to help lower the crime rate. By having the social workers, they're going to work at the heart root of the crime. They're going to work with people to make sure they don't go into a life of crime. See, the problem is while they're taking the time to do that, 
the the people who are the criminals are taking the city apart uh, while all the counseling and the social working is going on. And look, I'm somebody who believes in intervention. I mean, I, I believe that if you can get in and you can reach people before they become criminals, uh, obviously that's an advantage in any situation because it's going to drive crime rates down. But you don't do that by hiring social workers. You do it by encouraging family units, strong family units. You do it by increasing education, by making sure that students are in school every day instead of out on the street signing up with gangs and finding mischief to get into. Uh, you do it by creating a cultural environment of stability through the family, community groups, um, and again, uh, students who are in school and who are learning and who are not hopeless because they see that there's a path of success for them. But none of that is in that. That's the way that you do preventative uh, maintenance when it comes to crime. If you want to change the culture or change the environment where crime is rampant, but that's not going to happen by hiring a boatload of um, counselors and soup and people who are going to go out instead of responding when there's a police call you send a social worker, and you're likely going to have a crime on top of a crime is the problem. Uh, in 2020, Johnson proposed shifting money from law enforcement to social services, and he believes that crime should be fought at the root level, which is what we were talking about. Uh, but he's, he's certainly not talking about fighting it at, at the root level in any way that's actually going to make a difference. It takes time to change an environment where crime is rampant. I mean, you can't, you can't just go in with social workers and think that counseling is going to lower the crime rate at the scene of the crime. It's got to start with the seed of the community, that is, the foundation of the community, what's going on in the community. So it makes perfect sense to people in Chicago. I mean, I, it doesn't make any sense to me, uh, probably doesn't make any sense to you, but if your city's in chaos— and it's in a steep business decline, you decide the current mayor's leftist policies are a big part of the problem, so you go out and elect someone whose policies make the old mayor look like Ronald Reagan. I mean, I, I just I, I don't see the logic in that. I don't see the common sense in it. I mean, I'm sure in, in no time with this new mayor, Mayor Johnson, we're going to see Chicago turn into a peaceful city with businesses returning to neighborhoods, neighborhoods being revitalized, that's how progressives work. That, that's how progressive world thinks. When you have something that clearly isn't working, you double down on it. Because, you see, it can't be the policies. We can't criticize progressive policies. That can't be the problem. Just like communism, when you hear uh, progressives talk about communism or Marxism, that they talk about it in the sense that, well, it's not the fault of communism or Marxist policies. They will work if they were ever applied in the proper way. You've just got to find the right cheerleader. You've got to find the right person to apply those policies. And so now Chicago's going to say, yeah, progressives, it's not progressive policies. We need, that's what we need. We need more progressive policies. We need less police, more social workers, less investment in the business community. We, we need to allow homelessness to be out of control. In fact, we need a little bit more homelessness, and that's going to make the city better. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how fast Chicago continues to decline if Johnson moves in the direction that it looks like that he's going to move.
Now, all of this happened yesterday. I mean, it, it was a it was a banner day for progressives. They took over the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And again, I, I it's hard to minimize the significance of that because Wisconsin is an important sp- swing state. And when you've got a state Supreme Court that has the final say over election law and how elections are run in the state, when you've got a Supreme Court that's going to overturn the abortion law, I mean, it's going it, to, it, Republicans are going to pass laws in the state of Wisconsin, and the Supreme Court is going to overturn them because uh, Wisconsin has actually been able to achieve the goal of getting a conservative legislature, and now they've got a, a radical progressive Supreme Court uh, because of all the money was, that was spent and because, for whatever reasons, conservatives don't get this. I mean, I, I've, I've been frustrated with conservative thinking for a long time because conservatives will focus on a big election. Like, they'll focus on the presidency or they'll focus on a Senate race that gets a lot of attention, and they'll turn out in significant numbers. But you get a race like, eh, the Wisconsin Supreme Court, eh, it's an off-season. I mean, this is 2023. Didn't we just go through 2022 and have the midterm election, term elections? Why are we having another election now in Wisconsin? I mean, is there really any reason for us to go out and, and vote for something? Yes, um, but conservatives didn't turn out. Now, again, um, the, the progressive candidate in this case, that there was way more money spent. I mean, conservatives woke up about eight, ten days before the election and started trying to catch up with the money. But the problem is, by that time, the progressives have bought up all the airtime. And so it's going to be difficult, even if you've got the money, to buy ad time, to be able to buy the time, uh, because the time's already been booked by the people who came to the party early. Uh, if we're if we're going to have con- conservative policies, we've got to step in early. We've got to step in often. We've got to pay attention to local races. We've got to pay attention to statewide races, and we've got to understand the political dynamic that's in place when you've got a state that's going to be now run by progressives through the state supreme court. I mean, that, that's actually going to be a big deal. Okay, one bright spot for Republicans yesterday. It happened in North Carolina. Uh, Democratic State Representative Tricia Kaufman uh, defected from the Democrat Party. She crossed the aisle to become a Republican, and that pretty much created a veto-proof supermajority in the North Carolina House. So now Republicans can sort of have their way. They have a, a Democrat governor, uh, but they can now do a lot of things to if you know if a if the governor vetoes something that uh, the House passes or House and Senate passes that's conservative, then they have the ability to overturn it uh, at least in the House. So that that's that's a good thing. Trisha Kaufman's been kind of trending toward uh, the Republican Party. Uh, she's been she's been pretty vocal about the fact that she's been upset with Democrat policies. And her when when she talked about why she was willing to do this. She talked about the fact that um, the the policies of Democrats have just become so radical that she couldn't support them anymore. I mean, you know, this is a lot like Tulsi Gabbard. If, if you look at her speech as to why she was leaving the Democrat Party and you overlay Tulsi Gabbard's speech, there's going to be a lot more places in those speeches where they agree than where they diverge. All right, let's move on and talk a little bit about the judge overseeing the Trump case and um, also a little bit about 
progressive reaction to Alvin Bragg's indictments. I thought those two things would be interesting to get into. We we talked. We really spent a lot of time yesterday talking about the case, uh, talking about why it's a weak case, um, trying to point out if there are any strengths. We pointed out the fact yesterday that the that Bragg is elevating misdemeanors, thirty four of them, to federal or to felony status, and he hasn't yet identified the specific crime that the misdemeanors are supposed to be covering up, which would make them felonies. And he's got until probably December 4th to do that. There's going to be a lot of pretrial motions. I'm sure Trump's attorneys are going to try to get the whole thing thrown out. I doubt that's going to happen in a New York court. Uh, They're not going to be uh, anxious to overturn the decision of a grand jury. Um, So the charges are probably going to stand but whether or not they're actually going to see the light of, I mean, they're, they're going to have any chance, Bragg's going to have any chance of winning this case is um, questionable. So we're going to look at some of the progressive response. We talked about conservative response yesterday. So the judge, let's get back to the judge. The judge that's going to oversee the Trump case is in Manhattan is Judge Juan Mershon. And he's a Colombian-born immigrant who came to the United States with his family when he was six years old. He received a law degree from Hofstra University in 1994. He served in the New York Attorney General's office from uh, after graduating from law, stu- law school up until 2006 when he was elevated to the family court bench by Michael Bloomberg. And since 2009, he's been an acting justice on the New York Supreme Court, which is not the New York's highest. The highest court in New York is the Court of Appeals. But as a Supreme Court justice, then he can preside over cases, and he's going to be presiding over the case with Trump. Now, President Trump's used social media to attack Mershon and portray him as someone who hates him. Uh, you know, Trump's lawyers have been going out there and trying to counter what the president's saying. Uh, when you get Trump's lead attorney on some of these talk shows, I mean, he'll say, look, we don't have any problem with this judge. Uh, we don't think he's biased. Which, <laughs> which is a smart thing to do. I mean, you don't want to go in a courtroom ticking off the guy that's going to make all the decisions. But, of course, President Trump is going to be Trump, and that's why, why people love him. Um, a lot of people love him, and that's and then the lawyer is just going to have to go out there and clean up the mess. I, I would not want to be uh, President Trump's lawyer. I would think that would be a tough job because a lawyer's job is to advise his client about how to behave when it comes to getting ready for a trial, the things that you need to do, and to, to defend the innocence of their client. And President Trump is doesn't like to be told what to do, um, and he's going to push back and do what he wants to do. Now, he's flirting with having a gag order put on him. I mean, I, I think the chances of that are uh, actually increasing. The more he talks, uh, I don't think Mershon is just going to sit back and allow Trump to continue to attack him and to attack the process and to attack Alvin Bragg. Um, Now, Mershon has already ruled against the Trump organization. He was the presiding judge uh, that found the Trump organization guilty of 17 charges related to a decades-old tax evasion scheme where gifts and perks were provided to executives and they weren't considered salary. They weren't taken into consideration as taxable income. So the organization was fined $1.6 million. 
That's not a lot when it comes to an organization like the Trump Organization, as large as it is. But it's the maximum fine. I mean, that's something that needs to be considered. He did impose the maximum fine under law. Um, and, as, and we talked about that yesterday. Alan Weisselberg, who's the chief financial officer for the Trump Organization, took a plea deal uh, to testify for the prosecution. And so, uh, you know, look, does Mershon like Trump? I doubt there's a lot of love loss uh, between them. But again, it's, it's, that's not going to determine this case. Uh, this case is going to be determined not so much by the judge, but by Alvin Bragg's decision to bring the case at all because of its weakness. And, you know, if, if honestly, when we look at progressive reaction to this, if that's any indication about how successful Alvin Bragg is going to be uh, to come up with this magic felony theory and to push it and to be successful against Trump, uh, Bragg might be reduced to guest appearances on Law & Order. I mean, uh, we could see that coming down the pike. Because, listen, if Bragg loses this case, you know, he's the darling of progressives right now, but losing a case against Trump and uh, sort of, you know, pushing the Trump mystique by being able to say that Donald Trump escaped again, that is not what's going to further Alvin Bragg's career. So the task on his plate right now is to figure out, you know, what is this charge that I'm going to bring against him that's going to elevate these misdemeanors to a felony status. But Rich Lowry was writing a National Review today, and he went and looked at some of the progressive websites to see what they were saying. Now, you would expect that they would be out there defending Bragg, but to let you know how weak this case is, it is so weak that progressives won't even line up behind Bragg in order to support him. Slate, which is always a reliable source of some of the worst illegal analysis on the Internet, according to Rich Lowry, uh, has run two pieces about the indictment, uh, and they're both very doubtful about the possible success. Uh, Mark Joseph Stern notes that Bragg's legal theory, if not convoluted, is a fairly confusing effort to patch together disparate offenses into one alleged crime carried out over 34 illegal payments. That's actually a pretty, way to, pretty good way to put it. And believe me, Mark Joseph Stern is a progressive. Anybody writing for Slate or having anything to do with Slate is not going to be on the conservative side of things. Uh, over at Vox, you've got Ian Milheiser, that usually is, um, you know, someone who is loves to take on progressive legal theories because they want to push the envelope. But he's even he can't get on board uh, the Bragg train, according to Rich Lowry, on this one. Quote: uh, It's unclear that the felony statute that Trump is accused of violating actually applies to him. Yeah, I think that's being generous to say that it's unclear. Ruth Marcus of the Washington Post warned about the potential weakness of the case prior to the unsealing of the indictment. And now that the indictment has been unsealed and Marcus has seen it, uh, she is decidedly unimpressed. She, this is what she said. This is the Washington Post. Now, keep in mind, the Washington Post, I don't know that it has ever run a positive story about Donald Trump. I mean, if it has, I missed it. And I, I read the post pretty regularly to try to be prepared to talk about truth and politics and culture. But, but here's what she wrote. She said it's disturbingly unilluminating, and the theory on which it rests is debatable at best, 
unnervingly flimsy at worst. I mean, these are progressives. This is the way they're looking at it. Former FBI Director Andrew McCabe, who is a top Trump villain, I mean, somebody that really, really doesn't like Trump, somebody that is the antithesis of Trump. He said the indictment landed like a dud, a most unimpressive document. So all, why am I bringing all this up? Because if this is what progressives are saying about uh, Alvin Bragg chances of, of, of winning in court, um, and these are people who look at this on a regular basis. I mean, they, they comment regularly on the legal um, uh, outlook, and, and they're constantly, the other thing about them to note is that every one of them constantly comes down on the side of progressives. They constantly are agreeing with progressive theory when it comes to the law. They are willing to push the law as far as they can for a progressive purpose. And it's just amazing to me that even though that's true about every one of these commentators, they all have looked at the Bragg indictment and they're shaking their head. So you can imagine conservative pundits uh, that are shaking their head about it. I mean, I've read the indictment. I've read the statement of facts. I've, I've looked at this. I've read a ton of commentary on the Trump indictment. And you have to look pretty hard to find somebody who's making a cogent case for Bragg being successful. Now, they're out there. There are headlines. You know, uh, I was looking at the, the Drudge Report. I guess it was last night. Um, and there were a couple of stories there about how that they think Trump's going to be, um, uh, you know, is going to be convicted. And he might even go to jail because each one of these counts carries a four-year, the possibility of a four-year prison sentence. So obviously, President Trump, if he was found guilty, would could be sentenced to jail for pretty much the rest of his life. And but I just don't think I don't even know that this does make it to the to a jury. Uh, I think that there's so many holes in the case. Unless Alvin Bragg makes a big legal comeback and he's able to actually put together and figure out whether is the the charge the, uh, is it New York state law that Trump has violated? Is that is that the way we're going? Or is it federal election law? Is that the way we're going? Or is it something else? I mean, I think we're going to, we'll just, we'll have to wait and see. All right, joining us on the phone this morning is Representative John McCravey. He is the leader of the Family Caucus uh, in the House of Representatives in South Carolina. Good morning, John. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well, Excellent. Dr. Bean. I appreciate you calling in this morning. Before we talk about what happened in the House of Representatives yesterday in South Carolina, let me, um, as an as an attorney, I'm sure you've looked at some of the indictment facts against President Trump and the statement of facts that Alvin Bragg put out. We were talking about that just a minute ago, and there's a lot of of, of progressive thought out there that doesn't support Bragg's theory that these 34 counts can be elevated to a felony. Um, as somebody who studies the law and uh, does so regularly and deals with it every day, what do you think about that? Well, I think, you know, of course, I'm not a New York lawyer, so I can't tell you how New York law works. Well, praise the Lord for that. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> but generally, uh, it's a, it's a far-fetched uh, uh, scheme to me to try to somehow turn misdemeanors into a felony even if you can do that in new york when the when the statute of limitations have run 
I just think I just think I would like to see the judge dismiss this case because right. I you, you know there are so many so many arguments beginning with the statute of limitations and going on beyond that. Um, you know how can you how can you say violated a federal crime or or uh, intended to violate a federal crime when he hasn't been convicted of a federal crime right. and nobody's even charged him with a federal crime? Well, so this this yeah. would be an unprecedented. I, I can't. I think the U.S. Supreme Court would have to strike this down because it's a federal question, and I think they could get jurisdiction because of the federal question issue. Right. Well, it's it's interesting when you say you know he's not even been charged with a federal crime. The feds looked at this. I mean, they looked at it long and hard. Uh, the Biden administration right. would love to have been able to come up with a charge against Trump on election campaign law violations. And they spent some time and finally walked away and said there's just not enough here. So the the actual violation that would be the felony is going to have to come from the fact that Michael Cohen pled guilty uh, to election law violations. And, I mean, if he's the key witness um, he's, he's a serial liar. I mean, that's been demonstrated in court and he's, it, so I think it's a very weak case. I'm, I'm like you, I, I hope somewhere, even in New York, uh, that a judge would see this for what it is and throw it out. Let's talk about South Carolina because, you know, South Carolina is not New York. Um, we're, we're, uh, have the reputation of being a conservative state we have 88 Republicans in the House out of 124. We have 30 Republican senators uh, out of 46. Uh, we have a Republican governor. All of the constitutional offices in the state are held by Republicans. But yesterday, uh, the House dealt with an issue of paramutual betting, which in South Carolina, gambling is something that we fought hard against for a lot of years. We were able to get rid of video poker. Um, after realizing and recognizing that video poker was going to be, uh, I mean, it was really hurting the culture in South Carolina. It was hurting the poor. It was hurting middle-class people because they were getting caught up in it, uh, getting addicted, uh, you know, losing their houses, I mean, reputations. A lot of bad things were connected to this, and we were able to push it out the door. And yesterday, we opened up the door and said paramutual betting, online betting, can be used for horse racing in South Carolina. Help me to understand how this happened. Well, here's how it happened, and I'm going to tell you what a tragedy it could be. Um, a study committee was formed to help the equine industry. Okay, right. It didn't have anything to do with betting. Yeah, the horse industry. Next thing you know... The next thing you know, the members of that committee were flown up to Kentucky and other places and indoctrinated with gambling. And so, you know, these big gambling interests are trying to get a foothold all the time in our state because right. there's big money involved in this. Oh, yeah. So this committee turned that and they turned a, a, a bill to try to help horses, the horse industry, into a gambling bill. And the, the bill is so bad, I can't begin to tell you, 90% of the income is going to go if this bill is passed is going to go to gambling organizations that could be from anywhere in the world russia china uh, uh international and 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 all of the money from south carolina that's bet is going there to help those gambling organizations not right. like the lottery where you you know you're helping education here in south carolina yeah, it let doesn't me... even help the south carolina tracks because it's on 
it's uh, it's done over a mobile phone and you can bet under this bill you can bet on any race in the united states right so it's not a a south carolina uh, equine betting bill it's a it's actually a sports betting bill over the whole united states well, well, and so five percent how much yeah, go ahead, go ahead. five percent i was just going to say that that only five percent of the profit is is coming to the actual uh equine industry in south carolina which is uh, a very small amount comparatively could be less just a couple hundred thousand dollars and so so uh you know this is not the way to help horses in our state the best way to help them is to refurbish some of these tracks. I'm all for that. I think we have the money to do that. We could spend a couple of million dollars and we could renovate all the tracks in South Carolina and make them look great and help our horse industry. But this is this is outrageous to try to insert gambling through a bill like this. And we fought a fight to tell about yesterday. I'm here to tell you. Uh, we didn't lose by much. It was a close vote. I think I don't think the, if the governor vetoes this, I don't think they'll be able to override it. And as a result, we could still stop it. But but uh, there's well, a lot to talk about. I know you have questions. Well, it also has to pass in the Senate, right? Um, so that's we, right. And I've I've talked to several senators about it, and there doesn't seem to be a, a big push over there. I know there's a couple of senators. Senator Katrina Sheely uh, is a big sponsor of this bill. Uh, she's trying to get around some objections uh, to the Senate. So, uh, you know, there's a, there are procedures in the Senate that allow these bills to get slowed down. And I know that Senator Massey's being pressured uh, to walk around some of those procedures to try to get this bill to the floor. But there just doesn't seem to be a lot as much enthusiasm over there as there has been in the House. Well, here's the thing. You know, just like the Senate, we have our Republicans that are moderate. So 20, Repu 20 moderate Republicans joined with the Democrats to defeat a majority of Republicans who are against this bill. Right. So, the, you know, the moderate Republican side is the problem. And, you know, I, I hate that because it's just, it, you know, we start off with a bang in the House of Representatives. We passed the Human Life Protection Act. We right. passed bond reform. We passed workforce development. But the last uh, month or so, we've passed hate crimes, which is a Democrat bill uh, that 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 uh, glorifies certain classes of people over others. We've we've passed now. We passed another Democrat bill. This bill was sponsored by Democrats. They all voted for it, and it's a gambling bill. So twice now we've had the moderate Republicans join with the Democrats to pass Democrat bills. Right. This is a bad thing. And I, and I, I hope this trend does not continue in our state because we're going to have to, we're going to have to decide whether we're really Republicans or not. So I, I'm, I'm dismayed this morning at the number of Republicans who voted for this bill. I believe that, that, uh, most of them were from the lower part of the state, not from the upstate of South Carolina where our conservatives are strong. So, uh, you know, well, let me ask you about the future a little bit here. I mean, I know we, we can't predict that accurately, but this is opening a door. I mean, we had, and, and again, I go back to where we started. We had pretty much closed the door on gambling. Yes, we had the lottery. But again, the lottery was tied to education. All of that money um, in South Carolina is spent. There's administrative cost, of course, but it goes to scholarships and 
different uh, things that that aid in education. Uh, I was opposed to the lottery. I'm still opposed to it. I still think we can pay our bills, support the things that matter without turning device that hurts people to get it done. Uh, but it's the law. It's been the law for a while. I'm not suggesting we go back. But this is opening the door for other types of online betting. I mean, once you say, I'm assuming that this bill limits paramutual online betting to horse racing. But how long is it going to be before it's opened up to baseball, to football, to anything? And, and well, what would be uh, the argument against it? And then the next step is, are we going to see um, a return to video poker? Or are we going to see groups that are trying to push casino gambling in South Carolina? I mean, I can imagine for a long time casinos have really wanted to get into Charleston, Myrtle Beach, um, because they think they can make a, a fortune if they could get in these coastal towns, these resort areas, uh, vacation areas, um, they, could, they could just run wild. Um, what are the chances of that now that the door's been opened to this? Well, the chances are much greater. And, you know, the argument is, well, you know, now that we have horse betting, what's the difference between that and a baseball game? Right. You know, so so it, it's going to it's going to mushroom from here. And, you know, I tell you I, what Davey Hyatt said on the floor in his closing argument, uh, you know, touched me. And he said this, every one of you out there uh, know somebody who has been affected by gambling addiction. Right. And it's a tragedy to families. You know, I mean, it it. it one of the Democrats came up to me after the thing was over with, and he just didn't vote on it because he didn't want to vote against his party, but he also didn't want to vote for the bill, so he just walked on it. But he told me, he said, I was raised by a, a father who was addicted to gambling. He says, my family was a tragedy. And he said, you just wouldn't believe. And he told me some details that are just horrible. Right. So we all know the tragedies of, of gambling. We know the gambling addiction uh, is a terrible thing. And, and, you know, so, so we saw that in video poker, you know, we should have learned our lesson here. Uh, I think too much time's gone by and a lot of these legislators don't remember it. They're not old enough to remember what happened during the video poker days about all the suicides, about all the people ruined as a result. And, and, you know, it wasn't as bad as this bill because at least you had to, you, you had to spend every, your whole paycheck a quarter at a time. With this bill, you can get online and lose everything you got in no time. Right. So it's it's worse. It's much worse, and it could lead to even worse tragedy than what we had in video poker. And look, video poker, we actually had the revenue came to businesses in South Carolina. This revenue is going to the gigantic gambling industry, uh, who knows where. So South Carolina capital is leaving South Carolina. And I don't understand why we want to give away the capital of South Carolina when we don't have to. And when other states, other states who do this, the average is 20% right. that they take. That's twice as much as this bill does. Yeah. And, and a lot of states take 50%. So, you know, if you're going to help South Carolina, at least try to help South Carolina. This is a terrible bill to help gambling organizations, organized crime, and all everything that goes along with it. 
Well, I appreciate your opposition to it. I know you worked hard yesterday. Uh, Palmetto Family, the South Carolina Baptist uh, Convention, Office of Public Policy, and the South Carolina Catholic Diocese stepped in with a letter uh, to all the representatives. We sent out text messages. We uh, encouraged. Uh, we, we did what we could to try to keep this bill from passing, and we came up a little bit short. So we're going to continue the fight over in the Senate and then all the way to the governor's office. If it passes the Senate, maybe we can get the governor to veto it, uh, because I'm like you. I, I don't see this as a bill that could be uh, overridden, uh, particularly in the, if a veto was uh, put up by the governor. I don't think the House would be in a mood to override it. Let me ask you um, a final question here as we head into the sort of the stretch. We've got crossover, uh, which means bills that are going to be considered from now to the end of the legislative session have to have passed either the House or the Senate, one chamber or the other. Uh, they, they move to the head of the line under the bills that will be considered. Uh, what do you see playing out to the end of the session, and is there still any possibility of compromise to get an abortion ban bill to, in some form? Well, first of all, let me say this, and I want to kind of go back just a second. That letter that you sent out that, that was sent out from the Baptist uh, Convention, right. from the diocese, and from Palmetto Family, it made a difference. I had several legislators come up to me that were on the fence, and they said, look, I can't vote against these these people. These are, these are the people who, who make a difference in our state, these organizations do. So I'm going to vote the right way on this. So it did make a difference. And I want to thank you for that. Well, I appreciate but that. To answer, your, to answer your question, uh, yes, I've heard movement already in the Senate about taking up the human life protection act. It's behind the scenes. Uh, it's, it's real. They're feeling the pressure. They, they, they want to take this up. The conservatives over there want to take it up and pass it. The moderates want to take it up and let it fail again. So we, we've still got a fight to go. We've still got a ways to go, but the efforts are working. And, uh, and, and I think they're starting to recognize, you know, we're coming up on election year. Right. Um, and that's, that's going to make a difference in, the, in how this thing uh, gets looked at. So if they don't deal with it this year, we might see some senators that lose their seats because of it next year. So it's going to make a difference. Um, and I think they'll, they'll have to bring it up. Uh, well, and, right. I, and I think the Senate is, Senate is doing some great things right now, though. They are hopefully going to send us this uh, transgender bill that right. bans minors, bans surgery on minors. Hopefully we can get that out. I, I'll, be, I'll be the champion for it in the House. I'll, I'll work as hard as anybody for that. And so they're doing a good job over there, and we appreciate it on that, on that issue. So I do see a few things happening here. I think they need to take up the bond reform and finish passing that. That's important to keep these criminals off the streets. Right. And uh, so I hope I hope they'll see fit to, to pass that in the Senate as well. We've already sent that over there. Well, John, you've done uh, you've done great work leading in the House, uh, the Family Caucus. Uh, I know those. Uh, that's uh, you've got what um, almost forty members now. Is are you up to? That's right. About about forty members, and that we've makes we've got forty five. Oh, 45. wow. I didn't realize it was, it was, I guess the elections uh, added 
uh, some folks to the family yeah. caucus. So that's a good deal. Well, we appreciate yes, you and every, everything you do. And thanks for taking some time with us today uh, on Truth and Politics with Dr. Tony Beam. God bless you. Thank you, Doctor. We appreciate you. All right. Um, as what we're going to do now um, is we're going to move on and talk a little bit a, a little bit about the fact that today is Monday Thursday. Now that doesn't mean a whole lot to everybody because people are like, "What do you mean? It's Monday on Thursday?" No, no, no. Monday Thursday. It means it's the day um, in in Holy Week, which is where we are. We're leading up to Easter. Uh, Monday Thursday is the day when Jesus was betrayed. Uh, it's the day of the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples. It's the day of Jesus' agony in the garden as he uh, struggled in his human form over what laid before him. I mean, Jesus knew that he had the cross in front of him. And when he went into the garden and asked the disciples to pray and uh, they fell asleep, uh, Jesus was... Uh, the Bible talks about the fact that he had uh, sweat that was like drops of blood. And we've heard scholars talk about this, the fact that there are small capillaries uh, in the head that can actually rupture under extreme stress, and you can have blood trickling down uh, that mingles with sweat uh, when you're under great stress. And this is, this is what Jesus was going through. Uh, he went through the betrayal of Judas, um, you know, we know the story of how Judas was one of the 12. He was there with the disciples at the Last Supper. And in that moment, he dipped his hand into the cup with Jesus, which indicated Jesus had said, the one who dips into the cup with me is the one who will betray me. And Jesus told him to go what he must do what he must do. Now, theologically, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the fact that Jesus had to have a betrayer because Jesus had to go to the cross. That's what he came to do. The incarnation is about God becoming man so that men, that is mankind, men and women, can be redeemed and be with God for eternity. And in order for that to happen, the justice of God had to be satisfied. The fact that sin uh, couldn't just be ignored by a holy God, but it required the sacrifice of the perfect. Uh, just like in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system called for the uh, a sheep or a lamb without spot or blemish that would be offered to God. And so Jesus became the sacrificial lamb. He became the lamb of God who will one day be the Lion of Judah. Now, what am I talking about about that? Well, the Lamb of God is that he lived the perfect sinless life, went to the cross, laid down his life willingly. I mean, look, Jesus was not, he was not subject to the ruling authorities. He subjected himself to the ruling authorities. He humbled himself. Uh, the Bible talks about in Philippians how he humbled himself to the point of becoming a man, being contained in human flesh, even though he was the one and only Son of God, co-eternal with the Father, part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy uh, Spirit, the second person of the Trinity. He came down, became human flesh, so and lived a perfect, sinless life, so that on the cross there was that moment of darkness when Jesus became sin so that we could be free from the chains of sin. We could be set free from sin because of the sacrifice that Jesus made. 
And all of that is wrapped up in the events that began, really, with Jesus' triumphal entry, um, what began before that, but Holy Week begins with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And then just a short four days later, the people who were yelling, Hosanna, would stand in a courtyard. And when Jesus was presented by Pilate, they would begin to cry out, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Even though they treated Jesus like a conquering king riding on the back of a donkey when he entered Jerusalem. So how are we to reflect on these things today, tomorrow being Good Friday? You know, I think today is a day, as well as tomorrow, leading up to Easter Sunday morning, which is a, a day of incredible celebration for Christians. Um, I think we, we reflect on the suffering, the betrayal that Jesus suffered, the betrayal of those that are close to him, of someone who was very close to him. And, you know, I, th I think that's something that you can probably identify with. I know I can. I mean, have you ever had someone who was very close to you betray you, um, lie to you, say, and you know, tur it turns out that they're not the, the person that you thought they were? Uh, that happened to Jesus. And it happened to Jesus at a time when he most needed those closest to him uh, to surround him with their support. And maybe that's happened to you in your life. Understand this. Jesus understands it because he bore that for you. That happened to him, and it, it, it's, it's because as happening to him, it became part of the taking of sin, which he took to the cross. You know, Colossians says that he took the debt that was against us, and he nailed it to the cross. That is, that debt remained there at the cross, because of the blood that Jesus shed. And as we were talking about a minute ago, the, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, Jesus became that in the New Testament. And the book of Revelation speaks of him as the Lamb of Judah, uh, excuse me, the Lamb that was slain for our transgressions, but he's also the Lion of Judah, which means he's coming again. He's the descendant of David, who will sit on the throne and fulfill one day the Davidic covenant by ruling and reigning during the thousand-year reign on, on the earth, which Revelation talks about. But, but in the meantime, without getting into the, the, deep, the deep things of theology, I just want you to think about this. All of the pain, all of the hurt, all of the betrayals, the things that have happened to you in life that have led you to a point that maybe you feel like there's not anyone that you can trust or anyone who truly loves you or anyone who would uh, be willing to make it possible for you to find peace in this life. Can I just tell you, Jesus Christ is the one. He has experienced these things. He experienced them on your behalf so that you could know peace. He surrendered the peace that he could have had for eternity with the Father so that you could know peace. He took on the pain, the sin of the world. It's been described by many people. I think um, Spurgeon was one of the first ones to use the term, he drank the dregs, which means, you know, like if, you're, if you've ever had orange juice, I'll, I'll use orange juice because I'm an orange juice drinker. You know, you get down to the bottom of the, the last cup of orange juice, there's the, the stuff that's down in the bottom settles, 
And when, when we say that Jesus drank the dregs, in other words, he drained the cup of wrath that God was going to pour out on all people. He took it all. There was nothing left in the cup of wrath because Christ went to the cross and drained the cup so that we could know forgiveness and the peace of God. There's a story today um, that I really appreciated that is at, it, it's a, a story about a Hebrew word, and it's over at the Daily Signal, if you want to go take a look at it today, Virginia Allen. Uh, she Let me just read a little bit of what she writes, because I think this captures the sp- spirit of what I'm trying to convey. The beauty of Easter is captured in part in the Hebrew word de'enu, uh, and it means it would have been enough. It is a beautiful, beautiful word. It would have been enough. Uh, On Sunday evening, I sat around a long rectangular table with about 20 other Christians. We spanned more than 50 years in age, from the youngest to the oldest, but we were all gathered to celebrate a Seder meal together. The Seder feast usually takes place on the first night of the Jewish holiday Passover, which is April 5th this year, Uh, but because no one in our group is Jewish, we chose to celebrate on the first night of Passion Week, also known as Holy Week. For Christians... Celebrating the Jewish Seder is a time to remember God's faithfulness to the people of Israel and his kindness toward all who love him, whether Jew or Gentile. We need to understand something about something else that's miraculous about what Jesus did. You know, the Bible says in Revelation that every tribe, tongue, and nation is going to be singing around the throne one day. We're going to join our voices to praise and worship the one who has come to set the captives free. And, and so when we think about that, we, we realize that as a Gentile, um, I'm, I'm not Jewish, I'm a Gentile. Paul says, I've been grafted into the vine. I wear a necklace um, around my neck that is, uh, I don't know if you can see it if I pull it out here, but it's a star of David and it has a cross in the center. And what that says to me is that I was grafted into the vine, that God's people of the Old Testament, Israel, God so loved us that not only did he sacrifice his only son that we might be saved, but he set aside temporarily his own people, Israel, that until all of the Gentiles could be grafted into the vine. And that's where we find ourselves today. So back to the the piece by Virginia Allen. Various prayers in Jewish history are read aloud during the Seder, including the story of how God brought the Jews out of Egypt and delivered them from slavery. But the story is not just told as as a set of facts. You know, the the Bible's not just a recitation of facts. Um, And it is an active call to recognize the ways that God has exceeded our expectations and blessed his people. After each line in the story of the Jews' deliverance from Egypt, the people present respond, Dayenu, which translates, it would, have been, it would have been enough. For example, if God would have taken us out of Egypt and not executed his judgment upon them, it would have been enough for us. If he would have executed judgment upon them and not upon their idols, it would have been enough. If he would have judged their idols and not killed their firstborn, it would have been enough. If he had killed their firstborn and not given us their wealth, it would have been enough. On and on and on. In a world where everybody wants more, everybody wants what they want, everybody's looking for and wearing themselves out for the next thing, 
This word in the Hebrew, it would have been enough, is something that we should apply to our lives. We should be able to say, it would have been enough just Jesus going to the cross and dying for our sin. But he didn't just do that. He rose from the grave on Easter Sunday morning to prove that every word that he spoke, that the plan of God is true, that redemption has been accomplished, and that the grave has no power over us. You know, if the one thing that we fear is death, and most people, that the protection of life is paramount in their mind, death has no sting, it has no place, it has no power over a person who's been born again because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. Once we embrace the truth of Jesus and apply it to our lives, we confess our sins, we come to him in humility, and we ask him to forgive us and to apply that justice, that we apply the grace, the mercy that happened at the cross to our life, we find peace and we find it everlasting because of what Christ has done. I just want us to remember that on this day as we proceed through Holy Week. All right, I hope you've enjoyed the program today, and I hope you'll tell your friends about it. Um, if you're on Facebook or YouTube, um, I don't know how it works over at YouTube, but I know at Facebook you can share it with your friends. Um, and if you think this, is pro this program has some value, invite people to check it out. Hopefully, uh, by tomorrow, we're going to have these podcasts available. They're kind of piling up out there uh, that people will be able to download them and listen to the whole week. But And, of course, you can go to the website, drtonybeam.com. You can go to that website, and you can check out. The podcast is actually posted there. You can listen to it there. But hopefully uh, soon it's going to come through Spotify. It's going to th come through the iTunes store, all the places that you normally can get the podcast. So God bless you. And have a good day. I'll see you in the morning at 730.